You're in the water loop. How can water be sustainably managed in the desert? I'm in Tucson, Arizona, where they only get about 11 inches of rain per year. I want to learn how they reduce, reuse, and recycle water so they have a sustainable supply. I'm going to learn about how they are recharging aquifers to boost groundwater supplies, how they are getting water back in the Santa Cruz River after it's run dry, and how citizens have led the charge to harvest rainwater. Really excited for this. Let's go explore. My first stop in Tucson is the Sweetwater Wetlands. I'm meeting with John Kamik, the director of Tucson Water, to learn how they reduce, reuse, recycle. Talk about the water conservation efforts that involve citizens, learn how they're sending treated wastewater for use to irrigate golf courses and other greenscapes, and also how they're reclaiming water to recharge aquifers through places just like this. John, really excited to be here in Tucson with you. Uh, I'm fascinated by water reuse. You all have been doing this type of work for a long time. Uh, Want to first kind of get your overview of, of water in Tucson. You get 11 inches of rain a year. Where does your water come from? How many people does your utility serve? Kind of that overview. All right. No, that's great. I'm glad you're, you're here, Travis. Uh, welcome to Tucson. Uh, it's a beautiful place, beautiful time of year to be here. So Tucson's got a great water story. Uh, we're one of the country's largest groundwater systems out there. Uh, we serve about 750,000 people right now. Uh, we have no true surface water in our community. Uh, that's been long gone uh, as the aquifers have been pumped dry in the 20th century. Um, so we're, we have hundreds of wells uh, throughout the community. We do import Colorado River water, so it's very dependent on uh, what's called the Central Arizona Project. We're one of the largest contracts that receives that, but we turn that water into groundwater. We bank it in our aquifer systems, and then we can remove it uh, for future use and demand as we need it. Um, the other thing we do is we have a large recycled water program that we've had for, for now 40 years, where we take highly treated effluent and we take it back into the community and we deliver it to schools, parks, golf courses, most of the turf use in the Tucson area. Wow. All right, I, I, I like the phrase reduce, reuse, recycle. Mm -hmm. I always think that's so good. Um, let's talk about that reduce piece, uh, water conservation. I know that that's an area of emphasis. Before you even talk about reusing water, you wanna get people to use less. What do you do on that front? Yeah, that's a great question. And Tucson's also been a leader, particularly in the West, with conservation. Uh, our water demand has been going out down for more than four decades now. Uh, one story I like to tell is we're currently using the same amount of water today that we did in the late 1980s, but with 200,000 more people here. And that's all tied to our conservation ethic. It's all adopting to the Sonoran Desert. Uh, when you drive around Tucson, you don't see a lot of grass. You don't see um, just a lot of, you know, big trees or green spaces like that. You see desert and you see front yards that are desert landscape using very little water. And that's, that's what makes Tucson unique in that aspect. How do you work with your customers, with residents to get them to do more conservation at home? Yeah, well, conservation in Tucson is actually a funded part of the Tucson water portfolio, besides our normal uh, utility 
uh, funds that uh, the rates go to, there's actually a separate charge on the bill that is strictly for conservation programming that all the customers pay into. So that allows us now to do rebates for appliances, uh, changing toilets, helping uh, in the future, helping change turf into desert landscaping. We're doing a bunch of things in that conservation. It is a separate fund of our utility. Mm. I do like seeing those programs kind of sprout up around the West, that turf replacement, right? Can yeah. incentivize them to get that grass out that doesn't belong in the right. desert, right? Exactly. Get the native landscape in there. Um, so shifting to uh, the reuse portion, uh, I know, could you talk about how, what happens with the effluent, uh, kind of what the process is? I know you're kind of partners, if you will, with Pima County. Yep. What's that, what's that all look like? Okay. Well, the, the way the water, the urban water cycle works in Tucson, Tucson water is the primary provider. There are, there are other smaller uh, towns that have their own water departments, but Tucson by far is the largest regional provider. We take that water and then that water goes into the wastewater system, which ends up being controlled by Pima County wastewater reclamation department. But then once they do that secondary treatment and they, they clean up that water, uh, the majority of that effluent, about 90% of it originally, uh, is retained with the city of Tucson. Mm. So around 19, uh, by the early 1980s, Tucson Water decided we're going to do a reclamation system where we can send this treated, highly treated uh, wastewater effluent back into the community to be used another time. Mm. And so most of the turf uses that you see in the Tucson area are all tied to what, our, what we call our reclaimed water system, the non-potable system golf courses, schools, parks, anywhere where you see large turf in the Tucson community, nine times out of 10, it's being irrigated uh, with highly treated wastewater effluent. Wow. And then moving to the recycle, um, I think that's really what is exciting to me is, is kind of getting this water back into the landscape, back into the aquifers. Uh, what's the process there? What happens? Yeah, it, uh, exactly. So whatever is, we have the water that goes to use for those customers that are on a recycled system but also a large portion of our water, we bank it back into the aquifer system here. So Tucson is very lucky. Our geology is just one aquifer system between mountain ranges. It's just sand and gravel in between. And so we're able to take that excess water that we're not currently using, um, that effluent, and we're able to either get recharge credits by having it in the Santa Cruz River or in constructed recharge facilities like the one we're at here at the Sweetwater Recharge Facilities and some others that we've built to intentionally bank excess water into the aquifer, making it a part of our groundwater system so it can be used in another day. How much water are you uh, are you putting out that way each year? Kind of? Our customer demand is around 12,000 acre feet a year for the reclaimed water system. And then, but we're also able to bank about similar amounts of that water uh, into the aquifer. So about the, about the same. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so this, the Sweetwater Wetlands, where we're talking right now, could you talk about this place and how it's beneficial, not just for that, that aquifer recharge? Yeah, well, the Sweetwater Wetlands came about in 1997. We needed to expand our recharge capacity here uh, in this part of town. So we're double, we doubled, went from four basins, recharge basins to eight basins. But we also wanted to do something more environmentally friendly with the backwash water from our tertiary filtration plant. So we normally, we 
at the time took the secondary effluent from Pima County. We had to treat it a third time, so the tertiary treatment through filtration, but it created a lot of backwash water. So instead of just sending the backwash water back to Pima County for processing, we decided to make a treatment wetlands, have the water naturally pass through a wetlands, and then end up into our recharge facility. So when this got built in 1997, uh, there was an open desert field here. Uh, there was, about, there was only documented about 30 bird species. Now there's over 400. So when you put water in the desert, life comes. And, so, and we immediately, when you walk around this park, you can meet people from Germany, England, South Africa, uh, Japan, all around the world. If they're birders and they're coming to Southern Arizona, you will most likely run, a, run into them here at the Sweetwater Wetlands. So, so it's an awesome amenity for the community and for tourists. Yeah, it's a huge amenity for the tourism. Yeah. And then I know you have a, a newer facility, the SHARP facility. I don't, yep. I'm not sure what the acronym is there. You could probably help me out. Yep. But could you talk about that one too? Yeah, the, that was a facility we built just in the last couple of years. It's called the South Outen Area Recharge Project, uh, SHARP. And, that's, uh, and what we were able to do is we're using our infrastructure from our recycled water system and we built a facility on the east side of Tucson. This is on the west side where we're at now on the east side of Tucson. So when, in times of excess water, we could bank additional water out in another part of our aquifer uh, for future use. Okay. And we turned that into a public amenity also. It's in conjunction with a neighborhood that was uh, uh, constructed more recently nearby. Now, I, uh, I mentioned that during one of my previous visits to Tucson, I was doing some hiking out kind of, you know, west in the, in the national park there. And yep. I saw this, you know, giant water on the surface. And I, I was like, what is that? Little squares, shining diamonds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, what is going on over there? Yeah. Uh, so what is that? Yeah, great question. So when we get our Colorado River water, we do the same thing. We don't use it directly. We have no surface water treatment plants here. So how we take our Colorado River water in Tucson every year is we put it in constructed uh, recharge facility. So west of Tucson, the city actually owns over 22,000 acres that they purchased in the early 1970s for groundwater rights. Uh, they were all farms. They retired those farms. They preserved the groundwater rights. And that ended up being the place where we could put in some of these constructed recharge facilities and we've been banking our Colorado River water out there since about the year 2000. And uh, so when you see those shining lakes out west of Tucson, that is actually the future Tucson water, uh, potable drinking water supply. Thank going, you for, going in the ground. Thank yeah. you for explaining yeah. that to me. I, I wondered uh, for the past couple of years what that was. Uh, yep. uh, I, I wanted to ask kind of uh, what's next for you all? You know, this is a, a continuous process. You're always looking to improve. Um, what, what do you have on the horizon? Well, there's two things uh, that we're looking at, and it's part of our one water planning that uh, just was adopted recently. Uh, the two primary things is we're going to continue our conservation ethic and working with our community and providing opportunities for our, our residents and our businesses to use less water over time like they have been doing very successfully. Uh, but when we look at using water wisely again, I'll uh, talk about expanding our reclaim water program uh, most of it's going to just turf irrigation right now uh, what we want to make sure is that water is clean enough and can attract industry that may be water intensive that currently doesn't think they can set up shop and do manufacturing in the desert we want to make sure that they let them know that the way we manage our water we can do that we can give you a recycled water we can give you a, a very clean water and you can use that in your business so hopefully we can diversify the economy of tucson in the future by using water which most people uh, around the world that, that can't figure out how we can do that yet. yeah 
uh, lastly, you know, across the American West, we're seeing aridification, we're seeing real water stress, water scarcity issues, especially in the Colorado River Basin, as mm -hmm. you know. Um, Tucson's been doing this type of reduce, reuse, recycle for a while. You're at the forefront, really. What advice would you have for other communities that are trying to get started on this or make more progress? Always understanding your urban water cycle. Make sure you can count where every drop goes. When, once you're taking it from a river or from a stream or from a lake or using groundwater like we do in Tucson, you're, you're putting a lot of energy and effort into putting that water in the community. Know the path. Know where it ends up in the wastewater cycle. Know where it ends up after it's, it's highly uh, purified at the end of that cycle. There may be opportunities where you can use it, that drop of water a second, a third, a fourth time. And I think as more communities start to do that, they'll find advantages and be able to extend their water portfolio. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'm excited now to take a look at these Sweetwater right. wetlands and, Sounds good. and what you guys have going on. All right, let's do it. Let's hopefully see some birds. So you see some of these are customers people in the area that submitted all these uh, photographs. And uh, I think we're making a calendar. We're planning to start doing a calendar, a Sweetwater Wetlands calendar from some of the great, but you can see anything here from bobcat families to coyotes, raccoons, javelina. I know that's a, yeah. those are new. I mean, those a are- A lot of bobcat pictures. Yep. So, wow. Yeah. Every now and then someone spots a, a cougar. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. One of the oldest continuously lived in communities in North America. Our archaeological record is continuous for 4,000 years. There's no break in it. So there's always been people living along the Santa Cruz on this stretch between like downtown and this area yeah. right here. That is the effluent right there. Yep. When it was a treatment process, you had uh, what were called settling, uh, settling basins yeah. and polishing cells. So the water would come in, the secondary effluent, some of it would... Uh, it would slow down and it would, uh, the turbidity would start to go down and then it would go slowly through the shallow and deep water zones and then it ends up in the recharge basins on the other side. By having it go through this, all the turbidity fell out, but we also would get some natural denitrification. So the ammonia and the nitrate and the nitrite would go through anoxic and oxic zones where we ended up with the denitrified water that we were able to put into the aquifer. So this is one of the ramadas that were built with the circle going around uh, uh, the pathway around the wetlands, and this is a this is a place where a lot of school groups come. Uh, I think basically uh, all the all the school districts bring their kids out for whatever science they, whether it's third or fourth or fifth grade, and they will end up congregating in areas like this, and then they'll they'll have uh, you know bird maps and things that they need to go look for, and then they'll spend a couple hours uh, trying to find and locate the birds and other wildlife and marking it down. But uh, and, yeah, it's a huge area for the community that yeah. was unexpected when we built it yeah. and someone will talk to him about the water and what's yeah the water's like, like hey yeah. it gives you know this is actually your your wastewater that comes back around <laughs> exactly exactly right kids get excited about that kind of thing and they do why yeah. don't the kids like kids love wastewater right. <laughs> <laughs> a central part of the water story in tucson revolves around the santa cruz river over time, so much water was used that the river went dry. I'm going to meet up with Luke Cole from the Sonoran Institute, who's going to talk to me about that past, but how now water is being reused and put back in the river to help bring it back to life. Luke, it is good to reconnect with you. Sure. We were in the EPA Office of Water together for a bunch of years, and now we're talking in the middle of the Sonoran Desert here. Uh, funny how life and water works that way. Absolutely. Uh, one of the really interesting chapters to me about Tucson's water story is the Santa Cruz River. 
right? This is the river that made this place what it is. Yeah. Could you talk about the past a little bit, uh, the role of this river in Tucson and kind of the sad story of what happened to it? Sure. So the Santa Cruz River, it uh, had natural flows in it for time immemorial. There were some centuries-long breaks in our climate history where the river didn't flow, but in recent history, it's flowed to the point that there has been human habitation here for about 12,000 years. And in its most sort of modern flows in the last five, 6,000 years um, has allowed for the introduction of a lot of agriculture into North America. Mm. Tucson has 4,000 years of uninterrupted agriculture. It's where a lot of crops that came into the Americas uh, were brought in, wheat, pomegranates, so all the way from like the very commonplace to kind of the a little bit more like exotic plants. But it's a it's really sort of a cradle of agriculture here in the Americas. With the Western expansion that took place in the 1800s, settlers came out here and they found water. They found a thriving community. They found that the the Hohokam and the Otham people that came after them had irrigation canals up and down the Santa Cruz River. They were growing crops um, from the monsoon rains that would make the Santa Cruz River top its banks during the summer and in the winter when some of the winter rains would come through. So it was able to sustain population here for a while. That water at the time, um, as it remains now, was finite and people didn't appreciate that. So more and more Anglo push out from the, the east came out here and people started using the water for you know, farms and ranches, homesteads, and then uh, the advent of the steam-powered pump came on board, which allowed people to pull even more groundwater out, which required bur burning trees, like the mesquite trees that were standing underneath here that have so much energy in their wood. So we suddenly saw a deforestation of the valley of the Santa Cruz River and a accelerated drawdown of groundwater that fed the Santa Cruz River. So then, 1910 or so, the perennial flows of the Santa Cruz River ceased. Um, and then around 1940, the natural seasonal flows that we expected to see in the Santa Cruz River, at least here in downtown Tucson, dried up. So in about 100 years, the Santa Cruz River was killed. Mm. Um, and what followed was continued uh, uh, increase in population out here. Right? We saw more and more people moving out here. Groundwater was still available. So it's that many more wells being sunk in farther and farther away from the Santa Cruz River and its tributaries. And then come around the 1960s, the alarm bells really started going off because a lot of the stable wells that the municipality and the people had depended on for so long started going dry. At the same time frame, with more and more people, we started to have municipal sewerage. And that wastewater that was treated pretty poorly compared to today's standards was being put into the Santa Cruz River. Mm -hmm. So this river that had allowed Tucson and its former, you know, its former tribal self to allow population to exist for so long was now not only just dried up, but it was also sewage, I should say, put into it, mm. insult to injury. So it was, it was what sustained generations and generations and generations. And now as a result of that, we've seen generations of people disconnected from the Santa Cruz River because it became a 
a boring place, no water, a dangerous place because people were putting their trash, their cars, their waste into it, and then a kind of an offensive place because it was full of it was full of sewer water. So it really wasn't until here in Tucson, where Pima County upgraded two of its wastewater treatment plant or built one, upgraded another one in 2013, 10 years ago. Wow. Clean water started to flow into the Santa Cruz River again. Mm. And that's where Sonoran Institute comes in. That's where a lot of our NGO and other municipal partners came in because we were again able to put clean water into the Santa Cruz River, which not only provides, you know, riparian benefit, but it's still, it's recharging groundwater all the, all the while. So we are now seeing more water in the Santa Cruz River. We're seeing the return of a lot of riparian habitat while we're seeing continued groundwater recharge. And the source of this water is also no longer solely local. It's no longer just from the winter rains and the summer monsoons. Our water is imported from the Colorado River. So we are at the very, very end of the um, the CAP, so it's the it, this this project that delivers water from the Colorado River here to Arizona and and all the way down as far south as Tucson. So does that mean that I know that a lot of the water comes out of the ground? Yep. But there's that water coming from the Colorado, right. That's being banked and let to infiltrate. Yes. So some of the water that's now being put in the Santa Cruz to make some flows is actually Colorado River water. And the Santa Cruz is a tributary to the Gila and then to the Colorado. So you got it. the Santa Cruz should be feeding the Colorado, not the other way around. It's true. I, I mean, in, <laughs> if you look at it that way. Absolutely. Yeah. In, the high, in, the high, uh, in the textbook sense, we are within the Colorado River Basin. So a drop of water that hits the ground here ought to or theoretically could make its way all the way to the Sea of Cortez by way of yeah. the route that you just described. Yeah, yeah. Um, just talk a little bit more about the present sure. uh, and what is what the situation is with the Santa Cruz. Where is there water? Where is there not? And what's good about that situation? Sure. Yeah. So all of the perennially flowing stretches of the Santa Cruz River now, there's one closer to the border that we call the Nogales Reach. That flows from south to north for about 15 miles. That's fed from a federally co-managed wastewater treatment plant in the town of Rio Rico. The majority of that water comes from Nogales, Sonora in Mexico. Some of that water comes from Nogales, Arizona, mm. where it's treated at this federal wastewater treatment plant clean and comes out into the Santa Cruz River as effluent. Up here in Tucson, in Pima County, the stretches of the Santa Cruz River that are flowing are also flowing with highly treated wastewater with this effluent. So we have a few stretches. We have one stretch in the downtown um, reach of the river. It's called the Heritage Reach. That came online in 2019. It's the same water that flows um, up here by the Agua Nueva wastewater treatment plant. And then a little bit farther downstream is the Trace Rios wastewater treatment mm -hmm. plant. Those treatment plants are the ones that have been flowing now with clean water coming out of them for 10 years. And we're seeing an incredible resurgence mm -hmm. of wildlife, of usership, of ecotourism, um, and continued groundwater recharge all the while. Fantastic. Uh, I know that that's not the end goal, though, right? You want you want to see more happen for this river, right. a greater restoration. That's right. So where are things headed slash where are you trying to take them? So a big recent success that came through a um, Pima County City of Tucson partnership, this conservation effluent pool. This is an allocation of water that lawmakers decided decades ago should be made available for permanent conservation use in the Santa Cruz River. 
So of the two wastewater treatment plants that we have here, the one, there's a little bit of a break right between the two wastewater treatment plants. The flows from the one closest to us where we're standing now don't quite make it to the next one. But Sonoran Institute and our partners have found that that's critical habitat for a federally endangered fish species called the Gila top minnow that we see here in the Santa Cruz River. So through this conservation effluent pool project, there's now a permanent allocation of water to try to close that gap to maintain habitat for the fish species that are in that stretch of the river. That's the only real permanent conservation allocation of water that's in the Santa Cruz. What I'd like to see, and I think what a lot of people working on the Santa Cruz River would like to see, is a dedication of the water that's flowing into the river, as is, if not a mechanism by which we can scale it up more and more through the one water approach mm -hmm. that the city of Tucson and Pima County are starting to incorporate that looks at the full water portfolio and allow that water to flow into the Santa Cruz River at new locations as we get more and more people moving into the river. Mm. Curious, like, if you've looked at other communities that also have dry rivers and how some of them have maybe been able to get rivers flowing again, or conversely, if you're sharing some of what you're doing here with other communities in the West. It's really been, it's really been sharing a lot of what's happening here in Tucson. Tucson has been so proactive. Once we started getting our water here from the Colorado River, we started banking water underground for future use. It finishes, it kind of smooths the water out so it's easy, more easily used in our, in our water treatment train, but it also provides that co-benefit of recharging groundwater. So as more and more communities are facing dire water consequences, the ones that are at the end of the Colorado River, they're now looking to Tucson as, a, as an example location of how they can use their limited water resources as wisely as they can to allow people to maintain the lifestyles that they have, but maybe look at things like landscape ordinances, mm. um, maybe look at things like um, groundwater uh, uptake rates that, that limit the amount of water that people are using, ending or limiting consumptive uses, mm. putting a hose out underneath a, a, a tree in your yard in the middle of the day, in the middle of the summer, you're losing a lot of water by doing that. So providing a lot of education, providing policy, and providing some, some ordinances that sort of limit some of those uses uh, is a really important thing. Tucson um, and other communities do a great job at that. And I think there's a lot of information sharing that's happening throughout the Colorado River Basin now. Yeah. Well, Luke, let's go and look at the river All right. and look at one of these outfalls. Okay, yeah, Travis, we're about to walk down to the Santa Cruz River. This is the outfall um, from the Agua Nueva wastewater treatment plant that's managed by Pima County. And it's really the headwaters of this urban stretch of the Santa Cruz River. Oh, let's do it. Kneeling in the Santa Cruz River in Tucson, Arizona. This is actually where an outfall is from the Pima County Water Treatment Plant, where they are helping to get water flowing in the river again. Just on the other side of that, there it is a dry riverbed, except for when there's big monsoons and storms. And then they put this water in the river as a way to get it flowing again, and also help to recharge uh, the water in the ground. One of the things I love in Tucson is that that there's been a citizen-led effort to capture rainwater, to harvest rainwater, to put in features in neighborhoods to do that. Gonna talk to Brad Lancaster now about how this started and then how it turned into a partnership with the city, Storm to Shade. Just coming through the neighborhood here to visit him, I saw all these cool features where they've cut out curbs, put in like little low areas and had vegetation in it. Uh, 
really cool stuff. Excited to talk to Brad. Well, yeah, Brad, I was really excited for this uh, part of my adventure in Tucson. Just kind of a citizen, a person that has just taken the rain and, and uh, worked with it. I wanted to see, well, is there a way that we could give back more than we take? Because mm -hmm. you know, we already killed the Santa Cruz River, our local river, through over-pumping of the groundwater. It dried out, as did the riparian forests. And now we're pumping water from a much greater river, the Colorado, and doing the same to it, along with many other communities. So um, I saw great potential on our rainfall. Mm -hmm. So we only get 11 inches of rain a year in Tucson. But if you um, look at the surface area of Tucson and the population of Tucson, you actually find more rain falls on the surface area of Tucson in an average year of rainfall than all its residents consume at their homes. Okay. Wow, that's incredible math, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you get enough water if you use it sustainably. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But for the most part, when it rains, we're just kicking the water to the storm drain and out of the system. Whereas in the past, the rich ecology that enabled Tucson to be here in the first place, it was all set up to maximize that water, mm. to make it linger longer. Mm. So you could make it to the next rain. Mm. You know, you can make it through the long droughts um, with a living sponge. Yeah, and so I think there's kind of two, two ways that you've done this. Mm. One is yourself personally on your property. Mm -hmm. The other is what you've kind of helped to lead in, in the community or your neighborhood. Let's start with what you've done uh, yourself as, a, as a, a single citizen, if you will, how you have uh, planted the rain, this phrase that I've just learned that I, that I love. What, yeah. how, how can somebody do this as an individual? How have you done it? Well, we started um, just within the landscape. You know, that was the easiest place because we were just moving dirt. Because mm -hmm. when we, my brother and I bought this property, the water um, drained either to the street or into the house, okay? It was very dysfunctional. <laughs> so we, um, we got positive drainage away from the house and into the landscape. And then we created a whole series of basins in the landscape. And then we added a lot of organic matter and then planted uh, living pumps of vegetation to create that living sponge. So we, we flipped it. It used to be a, um, a barren, um, kind of like roof or you know mm. paved area, if you will, that just drained everything away. Now it's a very absorptive living sponge, growing shade, food, wildlife habitat, and beauty. So uh, that was the first step. And then, uh, then we stepped it up after that and we said, well, what about for our direct use, our domestic use? So we guttered the roof and directed the roof runoff into tanks. And uh, that's now my primary water source. So 95% of my water for drinking, cooking, bathing, you know, washing and irrigation and all that comes from the rain, comes from the, the roof and the sky. Wow, that's that's incredible, and you've taken some of these lessons uh, that you've you've learned on your property and shared these. Was that when you kind of made the transition to helping in the neighborhood, kind of going real hyper local? How how did that segue happen? I guess. Well, it kind of it actually was happening simultaneously, okay. um, because uh, as we were spongifying our own yard, we looked at how barren and uh, dehydrated and hydrophobic uh, the public land was in our neighborhood. Mm. And you did not want to walk in our neighborhood in the hot months, you know, mm. half the year. So there's just not really a lot of plants. Very no few trees, trees, very few. Yeah. 
and uh, everything drained to the street, which then went to the storm drain. So we had you know, real bad flooding too. Mm. Um, wasn't good for the streets. You had more potholes and stuff because of because of all that. So we wanted to flip that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh. And there was really not a municipal-led effort or a program on that front. This was really something that the people in the community started to just to do, right? Exactly. And actually, when my brother and I moved to the neighborhood, there was this whole community effort where um, there was many meetings where everyone, the neighbors are meeting to just talk and decide, you know, what do we want as a community? And a big thing that kept coming up is everyone wanted more interaction in the public realm. And uh, they also wanted more trees. They wanted more life. So uh, I, being younger at that time, <laughs> had more energy. I said, okay, well, I'll help spearhead that. So I got a grant for $1,000 to initiate our first annual tree planting program. Okay. But instead of just um, planting trees, I wanted to plant the rain too. So uh, we um, would create these three foot diameter, six inch deep basins for every tree. Okay, it was, it was very minimal, but it was something. It was moving in the right direction. And uh, we planted 200 trees that first year. Another thing that's key that's different, nobody at the time, no city program was planting native trees. They were all exotic trees, which require much more water and care. They're less adapted to this area. So we um, tweaked the list and only offered trees native to the area. The Sonoran Desert has over 400 native food-bearing trees. I'm sorry, over 400 native food-bearing plants, many of which are trees. So we looked to the ethnobotanical record and we selected trees that were well adapted to the climate and would produce food, medicine, and more. Mm. So it would be a living uh, farmer's market, a living pharmacy, a living craft store. And uh, it would create more reasons or opportunities to have deeper relationships with the landscape. It's not just ornamental. Um, so we went forward with that. Worked great, but we quickly learned we were making these basins way too small because in the big storm, they'd be full of water and overflowing to the street. Huh. And uh, so we then uh, saw there was some areas in the neighborhood where the street curb dipped down for a driveway and water would you know, come in a little bit there. And we thought, oh, okay. So we then started uh, enlarging our basins to the dip in the curb, you know, where there was that driveway dip. And they worked so much better, caught so much more water. The rate of growth of the trees doubled, okay? And then we realized, well, so many areas don't have a dip in the driveway. So that's when we started cutting the street curbs illegally on Sunday mornings when no one from the city was watching. Mm. And we started at the top of the watershed where there was less flow, less chance of a mistake, Mm. and uh, um, worked out the kinks, improved upon it, and then uh, kept going. Wow. And uh, the neighbors got really excited and number would come by and say, why are your trees growing so much faster than ours? And we never see you watering, but we have to water all the time. Mm. And so then we told them what we're trying to do. They got excited, want to do likewise. And they said, well, we want to do that now. That's when we approached the city to legalize it. How and when did this evolve into kind of more of this storm to shade program where the city has really embraced what's happened in your neighborhood? Yeah, so um, we, uh, we got things legalized and then we got a neighborhood reinvestment grant from the county for a half million dollars, the neighborhood did. 
the neighborhood decided to spend that money four ways in water harvesting, traffic calming, tree planting, and public art. But instead of doing it all separate, we integrated it. So with that grant money, all of a sudden, um, we were able to offer these rain gardens to neighbors at no cost. So people jumped on and we went from there just being one person on a block harvesting water to 80% of the people on the block harvesting water. Uh, and not just street side, but in the street with water harvesting, traffic calming, traffic circles and curb extensions, which then made the street safer as well as shadier and cooler. Um, and that was the first time the city had ever put its strength behind such a project. How has then over the past four years or so, uh, the Storm to Shade program helped expand you know, green infrastructure, rainwater capture, and, mm -hmm. and these practices across the city? Is it spreading? Oh, it's definitely spreading. So uh, they, they're getting grant monies and also money from the city to go into different neighborhoods, especially where there's a flooding problem, start upstream. So reduce that flow that's contributing to the uh, the flooding downstream, um, and also looking at neighborhoods that really lack tree cover, like our neighborhood was when we started, mm. and uh, um, try and get more of a living canopy, while at the same time using that stormwater that previously was a nuisance to instead be the free water source for those plantings. Yeah, And so there's been a focus on the... Um, uh, the more challenged neighborhoods, um, and uh, also working in um, city parks. So uh, reduce some of the turf on the perimeter of the park and start bringing in the water from the streets that surround the park for street side plantings, um, more native or drought tolerant plantings there. Um, yeah, so that's yeah. been a big thing. And I also just wanted to say too that um, the, well, it's a fantastic program. It, it's not well enough resourced. Mm -hmm. So it can't meet all the demand of the city. So what we're trying to do with our neighborhood foresters effort is show other neighborhoods how you can fill the gap when the storm to shade program doesn't have enough resources to maintain everything. So like what happens in this neighborhood, storm to shade will maintain some of the in-street in green infrastructure installations where neighborhood forester volunteers will do others where we're able to get one or more people on that block to be the steward, mm. the residential steward. So we train them. Um, storm to shade can help us with training programs. Uh, and then storm to shade crews can come one to twice a year to help with areas where we haven't yet identified a steward. And so we're trying to help other neighborhoods set up a similar thing so everything can be met um, and be within budget. Yeah. Last question for you, uh, advice to other communities that might not have this happening yet and they wanna start down this path. They could seem daunting maybe. Um, what's your advice to communities on how they can get started, what the most important things are to do? Yeah, so um, I would say uh, start educating yourself on what are some of the options or alternatives if you're not happy with the current situation. 
and then um, start trying to implement that into your life in whatever way is applicable or possible for you. Mm. The reason I say that is so that you will be speaking from direct experience rather than just ideas. Mm. And we have to also you know, work as a community, we none of us have the whole answer, okay? So we all have to come to it with what we uniquely have to offer um, and then see where others might, be, where their strengths can offset our weaknesses in other areas. And to never think of anything as fixed, but rather um, we should continually be striving to evolve ourselves and whatever we're participating in, as we see, oh, well, it's kind of fallen short here. Or, man, look at all this water we're not even addressing. You know, we could be doing so much better. Or look at these species, plant species that do so much better than what we're planting. Let's change it up. So you're always striving to look for what you missed, address that, bring in that potential, um, that that's really essential awesome well uh brad i'm really excited to go and and look at your property a little bit more mm -hmm. and uh go out and check out your neighborhood so let's do that all right well, brad you are a, a wealth of information about rainwater harvesting uh and please let folks know like how they can learn more about this yeah so i strongly recommend they check out the full color editions of my books rainwater harvesting for drylands and beyond which they can get at deep discount direct from me at my website harvestingrainwater.com and uh, in addition to that which shows rainwater gray water harvesting stormwater harvesting they can also check out our neighborhood efforts at neighborhoodforesters.org with all kinds of resources for other neighborhoods to do this evolve it expand it and go for forward Based on what I've seen here on your property and what I've seen around Tucson, I mean, you and this community are leaders in this effort. So I really encourage people to check out those resources. Thank you for this awesome tour. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Waterloo. As you've seen through this exploration, there's a lot of things happening here in Tucson to reduce, reuse, and recycle water. You're in the Waterloo. <laughs>